we, we finished a series in, in um, Micah, and uh, early in the spring we, were, we, we started in John's Gospel, and then we took a pause and, and did a couple of other series, and so we're going to actually pick right back up in the middle of that series uh, with John chapter 5, our 11th part in the series, The Word Became Flesh, and, and so that's where we're going to be today, um, <clears throat> and uh, pick up from there and spend some time in John's Gospel. Uh, As we go to God's Word, if you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, enliven your Word today in our hearts by your Spirit. May Christ be present among us. May His truth resonate in our hearts and souls and transform us into His followers, His disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Gary Hagan, uh, founder of International Justice Mission, and in his book, The Locust Effect, he's, he describes, he's attempting to help people understand how the, the justice system works for the hundreds of millions of poor people in the world, uh, in the developing world, and, and so he, he, he illustrates it with a, a, a story that as he grew up on his grandfather's farm, it was a raspberry farm, his grandfather had, had a, a, a truck. If, if, if you ask his grandfather if he had a truck, he'd say, oh yeah, there's a truck, it's right out there in the back, and there was this old rusted out, uh, you know, just decaying truck sitting on the back corner, as you might, if you drive through the country, you might see trucks like this in various places from time to time. And he'd say, yeah, there, it's right there. I've got a truck. And he'd point out that, that it had tires and had a steering wheel and had an engine and various parts of the truck. But if you ask Grandpa if the, if the truck worked, he'd kind of get a big smile on his face and say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't work. That truck hadn't brought a load of raspberries anywhere in a long time. That, that truck hasn't really done much of anything for decades but sit there. In fact, Really, all that truck is, looking at his grandson, is, is the home for spiders and snakes, so you best stay away from there. Really, I think the whole point of the story was probably to just keep him away so he didn't get himself hurt on the truck. And then Gary Hagen goes on to say this. He says, likewise, for the great mass of poor people in the developing world, if asked about the public justice system, they could probably point to things in their country called police or courts or laws or lawyers. But these things are useful to them in the same way the truck was to Grandpa. And that is not at all. That is not at all. In John chapter 4, just to kind of refresh us on what took place in John 4, you may be familiar with the story of the woman at the well. The woman asked Jesus a question. She she says, beginning in verse 19, Lord, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so she asked, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So the implied question is, which is it? You're a prophet, which, which is it? In verse 20, Jesus, or 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is... From the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father 
seeks. So, who has the proper form of worship? Well, the Jews did. They had the right place. And they had the right knowledge about God. They had a true understanding of who God was. They had the scriptures. The right canon, if you will. The right books in their Bible, if you will. The Samaritans did not. But it was working for them in the same way that the truck was working for Grandpa. That is, not at all. It was just a hideout for snakes and spiders, if you will. Christians often argue over the whether this form of worship or that form of worship is proper. Is it appropriate to have contemporary music? Uh, should you have you know, recessional you know, types of things? Should you, should you have more of a formal liturgy or less of a formal? And there's a, a number of things, uh, instruments, no instruments, that get thrown into those debates. And some of those discussions are important. I mean, Jesus did, after all, acknowledge that it mattered there in John 4. But having the proper form of worship can never be a substitute for having the proper effect of worship. Having the proper form of worship can never be a substitute for having the proper effect of worship. As Jesus and the prophets teach us, and we've been looking at this in Micah, and we looked at it in the Gospels, no matter how right their sacrifices were, their temple, their rituals, God despised the worship of Israel. He despised it. I didn't say that, he did. He despised it. And he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, function over form. And that function is being a conduit of God's mercy. That's what matters. If the truck isn't hauling raspberries, if it isn't serving its purpose. And if the worship isn't producing life in the needy, the stranger, the alien, the orphan, the widow, then so what? If it isn't changing husbands so that they love their wives instead of oppress them, or parents so that they treat their children properly, instead of abuse them, then so what? If the sick aren't visited, the grieving comforted, the hungry fed, then so what? All the form in the world won't do you an ounce of good. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. We could go on, but these are the equivalent of hauling raspberries, if you will. We need to be hauling raspberries if we're going to have any real value to what we do. When God chose Israel, it was never intended, this choice of Israel was never intended to be a cul-de-sac of His mercy. Road ends here. God chose us. No, it was always intended to be a through street. God's mercy doesn't stop with us because He chose us. He chose us so that through us He might reach the nations. A vital distinction that we must not forget. Everywhere, you look up everywhere, God chose Abraham. Why? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God chose Israel. Why? I'll make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, you'll mediate God's grace to the world. That is in a lot of ways what our text is about today. The Samaritans may have had everything wrong, When it comes to form, 
And the Jews may have had everything right when it comes to form, but they still weren't having the proper effect. So let's dive into John 5 and see how this is brought out. What's wrong with Jerusalem? Read with me beginning in John 5 verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals or one of the Jewish feasts. So, this is the right place, Jerusalem. Jesus just said that in John 4. And you can't pick a better time. It's one of the feasts. It's one of the religious times when people came to worship God according to how they were prescribed to in the Old Testament. Now, we're not told which of the feasts it is, and it's of no value to try to figure out which feast it is because John doesn't tell us which feast it is. The point is, it doesn't matter which feast. The point is, it was the right place at the right time. A time of worship. And here they are in Jerusalem, and Jesus, the question in John chapter 4, could this be the Messiah? Surely this is the Savior of the world. So, he's going to Jerusalem. And you can't ask for a better thing to do, because we know from John 7, like his brothers told him, if you want to be a public figure... The feasts are the perfect time to go so that you can make yourself known and everybody will see how great and famous you are. So Jesus heads to Jerusalem at such a time as this. Couldn't be a more idealistic time. Could not be a more opportunistic time if that's what Jesus was all about. Maybe he'll go to the temple. Maybe maybe he'll go up here to the palace. Maybe he'll make a scene in the streets. No, where does he go? Well, verse 2, now there, there is... In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool. Now, just for the moment, scratch that word gate. There is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep, and, and there's just a blank there. It's an ellipsis. In other words, an assumed word that we don't know what it is. And there's near the Sheep Place, you could say, market. Scholars don't really know what, what, it, what it is. A pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, to give you an idea of where Jesus went and where this pool was, I've got a couple of slides up here. And And the fact of the matter is, we don't know, I mean, there's some debate over what the location of the pool was. There are, I think, three possible locations. But it No matter which of those locations I pick, I can make the same point because all of them are outside the city walls. I think this is the correct one. It's the one that over the course of church history has been the most considered to be the the place where this pool is. And there is actually the remains of such a pool there. But you'll notice the, the big building in the top right of the city is the temple. Over to the left, the palace and praetorium and Herod's palace and so forth. That You see the buildings in the top left over there. But you'll notice... Outside the city walls, behind the temple, and about a football field or further away, a couple of football fields really, is a couple of pools. And that's where the sick are. Why? Because at feast time, everybody goes to the city, they go to the temple, nobody's going out there. Out of sight, out of mind. Now verse 4, which wasn't a part of the original text, but... Somewhere along the way, somebody made a note, one scribe made a note to let us know what the tradition was behind this story, that, that there was uh, a tradition that if some, every now and then the water would get agitated and the first one that would go in would get healed. Maybe an angel stirred the water type of a thing. 
Now, whether or not anyone actually ever got healed doing this, we don't know. Whether it was true, whether God was behind it, we don't know. All we know is this guy was there. It's, it's kind of a lottery for the sick. Okay? Maybe the leaders of Jerusalem spread the rumor that this happened so that all the sick people would go out there and get out of sight, be out of the way. I, I can't tell you why they did this or, 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 or what started this, but that was the story as it goes about this pool. Now, if you go to the next scene here, you get a little bit better idea because this is a close-up on that uh, section, and you'll notice how far out in the back the pool is. It's way back there, okay? Now, I think that's relevant because that's where Jesus goes. And when it says near the sheep, the last time sheep were mentioned in John's gospel was in chapter 2 when Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves. That's, that scene, if you go back to that, just real quickly to that last scene, if the temple is in that back corner and the pool is behind it, then think about it. Behind the temple may well be where they kept the sheep for sacrifices, may well be where they kept the animals that would be brought in to be sold, or maybe they'd already been bought and now they're waiting to be sacrificed. So it could well just simply be near the sheep place, the place where they kept the sheep for sacrifice, out back where the animals are. I can't help but think, though, when I see sheep mentioned in the same line with a great number of disabled people lying there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, I can't help but think of the time when Jesus saw the crowd harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We read in Matthew 9. Here these people are. It's the right place. It's the right time. But notice, there's no one to help. Read with me again now, beginning in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I have no one to help me. All this religion, all these people, no one to help him? No one to help him. Sacrifices and offerings are happening. Hence the sheep. Where's the love? Why is there no one to help? Well, I think we see it in verse 42. Look with me down to verse 42. But I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. That's why there's no one to help. They didn't have the love of God in their hearts. Now, there's two ways to understand the love of God, possibly. I mean, just grammatically, one could take that to mean love for God. Or one could take that to mean the love that comes from God, hence for others. The kind of love that is from God, the love of God. God's love, in other words, in their hearts. And while most commentators go with the former, it's love for God, I will argue that, that it has to be love from God for a number of reasons. Context which should be the overriding reason. But secondly, out of the 36 times that John uses the same exact construction that we would translate of God, 
every single time, if we take all the other ones but this, clearly have to be taken as from, not toward. And I don't think he'll break his pattern for one exception, especially when context fits. So it's love from God. It's the love of God toward others, if you will. Just like Jesus speaks of, yeah, I speak only the words of God. He doesn't mean words to God, for God. No, words from God. The words that God gave me, the love that God gives us. It's the same type of usage of that type of, of that construction. It's because you don't have the love of God in your hearts. That's why. But look at verse 44. We see again why there's no one to help him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You know why there's no one to help? Because people are seeking glory that comes from other people. In other words, what do others think of me? And as long as I'm concerned with what others think of me, I'm not interested in helping the least. I'm not out there. There's no glory in going out there. Jesus didn't go out there to get glory for himself because it doesn't matter if he does a miracle. Nobody's going to see it but a bunch of other sick people. Paul tells us in Romans 2, 7 that the proper way to seek glory and honor is not by seeking what others think of us, but by perseveringly doing good works, loving others, showing mercy, ministering to the sick, in other words. They were not interested in the dignity, the glory, the dignity that comes from God, but they wanted to be viewed highly by their fellow man, and that's what they found dignity in. What do others think of me? Therefore, all the sick are kept outside town and ignored. When people come to Jerusalem for the festival, they're out of sight, out of mind, but not for Jesus. Their religion was like that old truck, all the form, none of the power. They were focused on all the wrong things. Which leads us to the second part of our message. First, what's wrong with Jerusalem? The second, what has Messiah, <coughs> what has Messiah come to do? And let's begin reading in verse number 8. John 5, verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, or made whole. By the way, back in verse 6, the question Jesus asked, do you want to get well? We, we might, to get the emphasis that John is making, say, do you, do you want to be made whole? You want to be whole. At once the man was, became whole. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me whole said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up Pick it up and walk. Now, that's just the wrong question. I mean, what a stupid question. I mean, here's a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years. And he's walking around the temple instead of laying out there by that pool out of sight, out of mind. And the only question they have on their minds, who told you to carry that mat? I mean, it doesn't get any dumber than that. But that's what they asked. 
Why? Because their focus is entirely on the wrong thing. To them, righteousness was all about keeping the rules and not about loving their neighbor and caring for the weak and the needy. It was about sacrifice. Oh, we're, we got to keep the Sabbath. It wasn't about mercy. So they asked the wrong question. I mean, notice how it's even worded there. The man replied, the man who made me whole said to me, pick up your mat. You think they'd ask a question about the first part. Who made you whole? But no, they, they, they skip right over that. Who told you to pick up your mat? Who is this man? <clears throat> the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well, or literally, behold, you have become whole. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well, or literally Jesus who had made him whole. There's an emphasis on this word whole. That's why I keep going to it. Healed is used once, but while the word whole does include healing, and certainly means that, I, I think it's particularly emphasized by John here. It's used emphatically because when Jesus says, Behold, you are whole, I think it draws attention to that point. I mean, obviously the guy knew he was well. He was walking. I was like, what was it, a comedy? You know, behold, you're, wa- you're well. Of course, he knew that. But, of course, you're whole. That, that's a whole other thing. It's a statement that goes beyond and then makes sense out of the next part of that statement. You see, they, they ask, who told you to pick up your mat? Because they have the entirely wrong view of sin. And we talked about that last week a great bit. What, what, what is sin? It's the absence of loving our neighbor. The Sabbath, just as an example in the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it begins with, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of the house of slavery, out of Egypt. And then it's, worship the Lord your God only. Don't, don't worship these false gods that have enslaved you. Worship me. And then if you look at from the Sabbath on down, all of them are really about don't enslave one another. Don't oppress one another. Because the Sabbath, yes, you get a day off, but it's actually the people that work for you get a day off. Your servants get a day off. Even your animals get a day off. You can't impress, uh, oppress others because I've freed you from that oppression. And according to Isaiah 58, The whole point of the Sabbath was to do the very thing that Jesus is doing. Taking care of the sick and the needy and so forth. So Jesus was keeping the Sabbath and they weren't. They're actually doing the opposite of what the Sabbath was about. They focused on personal piety and not love of neighbor. But then Jesus ups the ante. Look at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, He's doing these things on the Sabbath. They're persecuting him. 
But then he he ups the end. He he says, my father is always at work. See, the Jewish leaders, they understood this, part of their teaching. They understood that God never stops working, not even the work of creation. They reasoned quite logically to this because on the Sabbath, babies were born. So God must give life on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, it rained. So God must give life on the Sabbath. So they understood that God still does the work of creation, that is, giving life, on the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, they would say, yes, he's allowed to do this, but you're not. And then when he says, and I too am working, now you understand why they thought that he was making himself equal with God. Then it goes into this whole issue about Jesus coming to give life, because if the Father's giving life, then I'm giving life. But when you hear about Jesus giving life, don't think, oh yes, Jesus came so that we could go to heaven. See, whenever we hear eternal life, that's what we tend to think. Oh, it's all about Jesus came so we could go to heaven. And then we just short-circuit the entire section of Scripture and read, go to heaven in it, when that's not exactly what he was talking about. No, it does include heaven, but that's not what he's talking about. When you read eternal life, think restoration to life as God meant it to be. And oh, by the way, it never stops. It goes on forever. It's not about just somewhere you go. It's not a location. It's about a quality of life, a transformed quality of life, a restoration to how God designed us to be. And oh, by the way, not even death can stop it. So yes, it's forever. Well, that's a little bit different than just go to heaven. When Jesus says, stop sinning, in verse 14. Now, don't read their definition of sin into it. I don't don't know how many of you are old enough to remember Bob Newhart. Got a few. And if if you remember Bob Newhart, you may want to look up at some point, not now, on on, uh, YouTube... (laughs) Just, just type the word stop it, just, or put in the word stop it. And, and, and one of the funniest videos, but it's from Bob Newhart. It, he's a psychiatrist, of course, and, and somebody comes to his office for a session. And he begins by explaining to them, um, okay, the way this works is the, the first five minutes are a dollar a minute. So $5 for five minutes, whatever it takes, I don't make change. $3 for three minutes, but I don't make change. So you can give me cash. And give me a check. I don't take credit cards, and I don't make change. And the person's like, oh, and then and after that, it's free. The person's like, hey, that's a pretty good deal. I, I think I'll take it. It seemed a little too good to be true. And, and he said, but don't worry. It rarely takes more than five minutes. In fact, I don't think I've ever gone more than five minutes. And so, you ready? You, you're good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. So, okay, go. Go? Yeah, tell me your problem. And so the lady that had come in to see him starts relating the anxiety attacks, I think it was, in the first scenario. And he hears it and says, okay, stop it. I'm going to give you two words, he says, and he wants you to pay close attention to them. Okay, stop it. Well, you can see where this goes. And she begins to share. When she realizes she's done in three minutes and she only has a five and he's not making change, 
She says, well, I'll, I'll use the other two minutes. And so he says, okay, what else are you having problems with? And she goes through each of these things, and of course the answer to each of them is, stop it. And sometimes I think when we read Jesus saying, stop sinning, that, that we kind of, like Jesus is just saying, stop it. And we kind of go, well, yeah, I've been trying to stop it, so like, what are you going to do to help me here? You ever felt that way before? I felt that way. You know, it's like, stop it. What good is stop it? Okay? And, 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 and yet, he says, stop it. But better, it should be read this way. Behold, you have been made whole. And, and not so much stop sinning, but sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And I think most other translations will reflect something akin to that. Behold, you've been made whole. Sin no more so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Jesus knows the destructive power of sin. He isn't saying, I want you to really try hard not to sin. I mean, can you imagine? You've got a cabinet full of poisons and you tell your three-year-old, I want you to try really hard not to drink the poison. Is that what you would say? No. Don't do it. Why? Because it will kill you. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. You've now been made whole. Not just able to walk. You've now been made whole. Don't go on living a life of sin. Now, was there some sin he had committed that put him in that place? I doubt it. Just like anyone else, he was a sinner. And I would suspect the bigger issue that Jesus is pointing to is this guy's now in the temple, hanging at, talking to the, the Jewish leaders, the people who seek glory for themselves from others, the people who do not have the love of God in their hearts. I think what he's really saying is don't be like them. That's not wholeness. Sin no more because it destroys your life and that you're not whole anymore. And you don't have to worry, you know, what, what, what in the world... What happened? What's the worst thing? I mean, he was already paralyzed. I mean, what's, what's he going to get then? Well, I can tell you something worse. He could become like the Pharisees. That'd be worse than paralyzed. He could become greedy. He could become self-absorbed. Far worse than what he had before. Far less whole than what he was before. Jesus can tell the man to sin no more because he's made the man whole. Jesus gives us life. He makes us whole. We must stop seeking the glory that comes from one another as if human dignity consisted in what others think of us. Listen, human dignity consists in being whole again. Wholeness enables us to subdue the earth and fill it with the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth to provide for others to To be fruitful. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. So what must we do to live in this wholeness? Well, let me back up to the beginning of the story again. Let's just revisit a few things. Verse 2. Now there was in Jerusalem near the sheep, blank, a pool. Now we're in John's Gospel. 
we arrive at a pool. We shouldn't just read past that as if nothing's transpired because every time in John so far, every chapter in John so far, water has had great significance. So chapter 1, you have several scenes of baptism going on. Now, of course, that's where Jesus is revealed when John the Baptist's ministry. So the Lamb of God is revealed. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Chapter 2, waters turned to wine. First miracle that Jesus did there. Chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus. It must be born of water and the Spirit. Meaning even the Spirit. Not two different things, but one and the, the same thing. Chapter 4 was all centered around a well of water and somebody's thirst. And Jesus offering to give what? Living water. So when we get to chapter 5 and he arrives at a pool... One that's about the size of a football field, I and mean, it's a huge pool, then we shouldn't think to ourselves, yeah, it's just a place. It's just telling us a place. It's all about the. No, it's, it's water that's mentioned. I think that's relevant. And then we have to ask the question why does it tell us that the man had been there 38 years? Why didn't it just say, like, a long time? Why, why 38 years? Well, it could be nothing. Where else is 38 years mentioned? Well, it strikes me that in Deuteronomy 2.14, it tells us that from the time they rebelled against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea until the time uh, that all the people had died from that unbelieving generation was 38 years. Now, that wouldn't be a big deal except for the fact that when you go look at the story at Kadesh Barnea and the conversation that went on and you compare it to the conversation Jesus is having with this guy... They sound an awful lot alike. So then you think to yourself, well, there's probably some relationship here going on. They're probably wanting us to bring that to mind. <clears throat> what must we do to live in this wholeness? Numbers 13, Caleb and Joshua tell the people, the Lord will give us the land. But the other ten spies say, they're giants. We can't take it. We can't. It was about whether or not they would believe the promise and enter the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the presence of the Lord, restoration. They didn't believe the Lord. In verses 6 and 7, read with me there. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. In other words, I can't. We can't do it. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I'm not denying the validity of what he's saying. I'm just noting how similar it is to there I can't. I'm curious when he says, I don't have anyone to help me. I don't have a man to help me. I don't have a, a person to help me. I wonder who he thinks is standing in front of him. A man. In fact, the one true man that he's ever met. The only true man he's ever met. Now, anytime you see water and then you're in one of the Gospels, or really about anywhere, and you wonder if it's got symbolism, you're almost safe to guess it could have some relationship to the Red Sea because the Exodus story is like dominate throughout Scripture and certainly in the Gospels. But while that comes to my mind, I don't think that's it. I, I'm reminded of the Jordan because of the Kadesh Barnea reference that they were about to enter the promised land. What's the water they had to cross to get into the promised land? And finally, after that 38 years, they had to cross the Jordan River. That also split open 
and they walked through on dry ground, and then the water came back over. So there is a relationship between the Red Sea and that, but regardless of what it represents, it represented wholeness to this man, if I could only get in. But notice Jesus didn't need the water. He was the water, the living water. He was the one this man needed. Amen? What keeps us from walking in the wholeness that Christ has made available to us? Why do we continue in patterns of sin, of seeking glory for ourselves, instead of seeking glory and honor by persevering in good works, as Paul told us, loving others, showing mercy, ministering to the sick? Why do we act as if we don't have the option to sin no longer? As if we aren't whole. We sang it earlier, he's made us a new creation. Why do we act as if that's not true? Because we see sin as a giant. We're afraid that we will die if we really serve others the way the king has called us to. Why, Why do we go on living that way? Not because we can't cease to live that way, but because we want to save our earthly life. We want to save our life. We want to hang on to what we think is human dignity instead of embracing the image of Christ, which is true humanity. Believing Jesus is saying, we can do what you say, Jesus. We can love one another. We can pray for our enemies. We can give to those who ask. See, there's a warning at the end of this chapter that we should heed. Look with me at verses 39 and 40. You study the Scriptures, Jesus said to the the, the Jewish leaders there. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, you don't have life in here. You have life in the person there to lead you to, in Christ. And we need to believe his words, because look at the very end of the chapter, verse 46 and 47. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The truth is that, you know why why, why we go on sinning? We don't believe what he said. We don't believe that that, that, that it's right to not resist an evil person, to give to the one who asks. That, that what we do for the least is actually of more eternal value. Because if we did, we would start living that way. Oh, we, we may not be pious. We may not keep all the rules. We may, not, we may do the wrong thing on the Sabbath. We, we, we may not have the right amount of Bible study or prayer time. I don't know about those things. But we would love our neighbor as ourself. And be transformed into the image of Jesus. That's what would happen if we actually believed what he said. Because if we believed what he said, we'd, we would lose our life and then we'd find it. What does it look like to be whole in a world full of chaos? Senseless shootings? Like we had this past week in Las Vegas. Do the people of God offer anything more than rhetoric or The rhetoric of blame that goes on in the media? Do we have any salve to to heal? In a world filled with racial division, do we show wholeness? Are we laying down our lives to serve one another in love? Are 
Or are we hoping that the government or the impersonal force of the markets, whatever that is, will cure poverty? Or are we stepping into lives personally and doing something? Is our community, the church, any different than the rest of the world? Or are the sick and the poor, the single moms and the widows, shoveled off to some place outside the walls, back by where we keep the sheep? Is our greatest allegiance when it comes to the immigrant crisis, is our greatest allegiance to the laws of our country or to the law of our king? You know, Friday night I was blessed to see there's a, a banquet for Next Step Pregnancy Center. As I looked around the room, not only were there tables filled with people from this church, but as I looked around at those tables, I realized so many of those people are serving in various ways and supporting that work that ministers to poor women in a crisis pregnancy. It tells me that there is a difference being made, that the words of Jesus are being taken seriously. There's always room for growth. Having the proper form of worship can never be a substitute for, uh, for having the proper effect of worship. We must join in the life, that the work of Jesus, which is life-giving, the life-giving work of Jesus. We must start living in the wholeness which Jesus made us to be. Amen.